Mark chapter 10, verse 17, page 1014. I have a friend who's in London, and he works in the city of London in the insurance market. His task is to write high-risk insurance. Now, high-risk insurance is like Wimbledon. So Wimbledon, uh, the All England Club, will come to him and say, we're running an event this summer, uh, as usual, and we need cover in case well, not cover in case of rain, but we need insurance cover in case of rain and or terrorism. Now, terrorism, I should think, is a really easy one and relatively cheap rain, I should imagine, is extremely expensive and very difficult to value because uh, there's a fairly high certainty. Going to be. He has to look at the premium and look at the risk and make a decision. Now, in a thing like Wimbledon, it doesn't matter so much if things go awry. But then something like Challenger in 1986 where, and it was 1986, I'm sorry folks, if that feels a long time ago, but if uh, Challenger in 1986, he was also involved in ensuring the payload, the satellite, the communication satellite that was going up with it. And so they came to him and said, we've got a five million pound thing going up with NASA is organizing it. And they said, well, that's good. I'm glad it's not the Russians and I'm glad it's not European uh, space launch. So it's probably safer than either of these. We'll do a, a figure and they came up with a figure. And, of course, they have to have the risk for the whole of the event, like it's what happens if the crew is killed, as it was in this situation, or this thing tumbles to Earth and these solid booster rockets land in the middle of Los Angeles or uh, Florida or something. So these risks are assessed. So it's very difficult to get the premiums for these things because, of course, they're sensitive commercially and not everybody's prepared to give the information out. But Freedom of Information America, the Democratic National Convention this year for a four-day event in August, cost John Kerry and his team $40 million, the whole event. The insurance premium for terrorism alone was $80,000 for terrorism. They had other insurance as well, but for that, that's what they had to pay. Now, you can imagine at 10 to 12 on the fourth day, the broker who laid this money He's just hoping all goes well. Five, two, two minutes to go, one minute. Now, at the 12th stroke of 12, he's finished. He has no more responsibility. But if a disaster takes place, he's joining the queue of job seekers. Because there is no place for somebody who writes the wrong insurance in this kind of market. You only make a mistake like this once, and it's a disaster for the company. Now, the young man we looked at this morning in these verses is a young man looking for insurance policy for eternal life. Because he's saying to Jesus, what have I got to do? He was an unusual young man. He was rich and young. It's an unusual mix in the first century. Like this culture, you tend to be older when you've got the money, younger when you want it. And it would be the same thing. It was unusual to find somebody rich and young. But he was also a ruler, which would be unusual. Again, a ruler would generally be an older person. So this was an unusually able character in some way. He, we're told in verse 17 that he ran up to Jesus and fell on his knees. Now, a young, rich ruler would not run and kneel at anybody's knees normally. This is an unusual situation. So he comes to Jesus in an unusual way. And he calls Jesus the good teacher. He says to him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And in a sense, you can also almost hear him say, make it really difficult. Make it something that when people look at me, they go, well... That fellow, he should, he should certainly be entitled to eternal life. Look at what he did. He's entitled to it. He's earned his spurs, if you like. So he's waiting on a premium. Probably not expecting it to be financial, but he has money. And so possibly he can buy his way into it. But Jesus doesn't respond to that question initially. 
Jesus says, there is no one good except God. And in making a statement like that, Jesus takes this young man right back, and if you follow with me, back to 1 Samuel chapter 2. I don't have the page number, I'm sorry. Let me read it to you. It says, There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside him. There is no rock like our God. Now, holy just means separate. There's nobody different at this level except God. Why are you calling me good, Jesus says. Are you saying, in some way I'm God? Do you really understand who it is you've approached? So Jesus leaves that question hanging. And then he says, you know the Ten Commandments? And so he lists, not all of them, but lists some of them. And at the end of that uh, list, the young man has to face up and say, well, how am I going to respond to this, this claim of this is how I've got to gain eternal life? But Jesus cleverly or carefully offers this young man an escape route because if you look at the very next verse in 1 Samuel 2, chapter 3, it says, Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such, speak such arrogance for the Lord is a God who knows and by him your deeds are weighed. So Jesus says, you know the commandments, there's no one good except God, and God says, when you come to me, just be careful the way you respond and the bragging you do in front of me, because I know your life. And Jesus offers him all of this in advance, because this young man knows these scriptures, they're well known to him. Now we don't have an equivalent to this, uh, taking a simple word and flicking back and it meaning a lot, but we use it in some ways. We'll look at, in John chapter 8, on page 1075, Jesus says a simple statement. We don't look at why he says it. But he says, before Abraham was, I am. Now in our culture, that is just bad English. It's not a a phrase that means anything to us. In the culture in which Jesus was speaking, to use these words was very significant because the very next verse says, the religious leaders took up stones to kill Jesus. Why did they take up stones? Because he said this phrase. The reason... They took up stones because he said this phrase was it had great significance. And the significance was that way back in the Hebrew scriptures, God had said to Moses, when Moses said, what God will I say has been sending me when I go to the Israelites to tell them to follow me and take my commands? Who shall I say sent me? And God used this name, I am. So when Jesus uses this phrase before Abraham was, I am, he is putting in that all this baggage from the Old Testament scriptures saying, I am God. And that's why the religious leaders took up stones. So it's a shorthand, if you like, understood by people of that culture and not by ours. The only one I could come up with, it's not great, but it does. They all this business with Sven Joran Eriksson. He's a football manager, you folks. Highest paid football manager. That's soccer, I mean. Football. Not, not real football. Um, soccer manager in England. Uh, for England, actually. He's the English team manager. And he is the best paid fellow. Now, there's been a scandal about who he's been uh, playing away from home with and stuff like that. And this has become known as Svengate. Now, those of us who are old enough to remember the original Watergate, which was tragedy 30 years ago this week. Wow. 30 years ago, where Richard Nixon stood and faced in front of the millions on the television and said the famous words, there will be no whitewash at the White House. Lying, face up, to the camera in front of millions of people around the world. And what, what when we use this word Sven, gate, what we're saying is it speaks of high goings on, unsavory things. Powerful people buying their way out of trouble. Things going on that we're not getting the whole truth. Cover-ups. 
things going around the back. That's what this phrase gate means in our culture. So in the same way, when Jesus makes a simple statement referring back to the Old Testament, it carries with it a lot of baggage and a lot of information that our culture doesn't really understand. Now, despite Jesus doing that and giving this young man an escape route, the young man doesn't take it. He comes back boldly when Jesus says, keep the commandments. He says, I've kept them all. I mean, I think it's staggering for a, a man to say this at all. If I were to say to somebody, I've kept all the commandments since yesterday, I think I would be doing incredibly well. He says, I've kept all the commandments since I was a boy. Phenomenal claim. And Jesus looks at him and loves him. I think if, and there is no scriptural basis for this, but I think if Jesus had a bit of Scottish ancestry, he would have been saying, laddie, laddie. It's that sort of warm, friendly, you, you just don't really understand, son. And what Jesus loves is this enthusiasm. He's this young man who wants to do the right thing. He wants to do what God wants him to do, and he believes he's doing it. He's confident, self-confident. He's sure he's done it. And he has the knowledge of the Scriptures, because Jesus takes him back, and he understands exactly what Jesus is saying. So then Jesus hits him with his bombshell and says, Okay, you've kept all the commandments, just this one thing. Sell everything, just one thing. Sell everything and follow me. And in verse 22, it says, His face fell, and he went away sad, because he had great wealth. Maybe you feel Jesus was a bit hard because that wasn't the demand made on everybody. Zacchaeus got away with quite a good deal. He gave a, gave a four-time fee fund and a 50% to the poor. But Zacchaeus offered that. Jesus never demanded it of him. He said, my money isn't important. Look, I'll give half of it away. It just doesn't matter to me. Now that I've met the risen, this, this Jesus Christ, now that I've met him, this is more important to me. And maybe Jesus was saying to this young man, if you take up this route and follow me, you're going to sell everything because in Acts chapter 34 it tells us the disciples had to sell everything because they were under persecution and they shared everything amongst themselves. So maybe Jesus was really giving him the true cost. But I think the sadness of this young man was not so much because of the money. I think the sadness was that for the first time Jesus had said to him, your money is your God. You've broken the very first command. You think you've kept all these commandments since you were a child. I just said to you, don't covet. How did you get all of this money? And he thinks to himself, maybe, maybe I've coveted. Maybe you didn't honor your mom and dad the way you should have done. Maybe you've accumulated this money by inheritance in a way that wasn't entirely appropriate. Maybe you put another God, the very first command, you have no gods before me. Maybe you've put that money in the place of God. So for the first time, this young man realizes these old commandments weren't just rules to be followed. They had a practical implication that he didn't really understand. And Jesus then takes the disciples as this young man goes away. He sees Jesus turns and says, you see, and he only speaks to the disciples, doesn't speak to the crowd. He says, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples are amazed. You may say, it doesn't seem very amazing to us. Again, it's the culture. Because the disciples are looking back at a book in Deuteronomy and thousands of versions of this throughout the Old Testament scriptures that these men knew well. And it says, skimming it, it says, the Lord will open the heavens. If you obey his commands, he will open the heavens. You will lend to many nations, but borrow from none. You will always be at the top, never at the bottom. Therefore, temporal blessings were viewed as something that were given by God. So somebody who was rich and famous and doing well in that culture People thought they, God must be blessing them. Surely these are the very people. Now, in our culture, what do we think that people would expect 
everybody like this. We've got to have them. So this week, John Easton, our BBC cameraman, uh, ably assisted by his new assistant, Ruth, went out and uh, did some Vox Pops. So we'll watch them for a minute and a half. I have no idea how I will get there, I just thought it out. Have you had in your life some experiences that, which brought you to think of God? I think that's the right way, and if you remember that one. Yeah, about being a good girl. Uh, how do you think I'm getting there? I think stairway. I think stairway comes down and just looks me up. <laughs> and looking after people and just being a nice person. I just, I'm starting to not believe in religion as I get older. The more, the more I believe you know, in scientific facts and things like that, I look at the Bible and say, it's a book of rules and that's it. Good people, not being evil. Right. Being a lapsed Catholic, I'm not really sure. I think I've got just good and it will, it will go there, I don't know how. I think just keep, keep yourself in the right side and you'll get there. Definitely there. No idea. I hadn't really thought about it, I'll take it. I think I'm a good enough person to get there. Not that bad, <laughs> I don't think. <laughs> no idea, to be quite honest with you. I wish somebody could tell me. <laughs> so you couldn't have built that in, but you see, in our culture, these are just ordinary folks on the streets on a lovely sunny day in Edinburgh. Our culture would say, the people who are going to go to heaven are the good people, not rich. You can go onto the web and look up www. if you've got nothing better to do, and look up kindacts.net, and you will read there all the good things these people have done, and they want to tell other people about. I don't know whether they feel somebody is scoring this somewhere, and uh, that you know if they get to 500, somehow this will bring that stairway down, and they'll just walk up it. I don't know what the what the thinking is, but there are many, many websites like this where Gina says, "When my three-year-old sister falls, I help pick her up, or she would cry." Well, that's worth a point, you would figure. So, uh, this, this must go into the fact. So, our culture is something like, and it's hard actually to find somebody good, but if I said to you, do you think somebody like Sven, because he's rich, or David Beckham, who's another soccer person, uh, David Beckham will go to heaven, probably most of us, just in the culture, would say, no, they're, they're not the sort of people who go to heaven because they're rich or famous or clearly, apparently blessed by God. They're not the sort. Of, but if I said, do you think Nelson Mandela, say, absolutely. That's just the type of guy who's going to get into heaven because he's a good man. And he's forgiven a lot of people for some of the bad things. So what Jesus is saying in our culture is I'm not saying rich only or good. I'm saying anything. It's hard for anyone. And so Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are even more amazed. And they think if it's not the rich, if it's not the ones who are clearly being blessed by God, if it's not the famous people like a rich young ruler... And in our culture, if it's not the generous, if it's not the forgiving, if it's not the good, the kind, the self-sacrificing person, then, and then the question, who then can be saved? And that's the title of the passage, because that is the important question. And it's only as soon as the, young, the disciples say, who then, in other words, they sort of knock back and they say, who then can be saved? Then Jesus says, that is the right question. The question isn't, what must I do to be saved? The question is, who then? can be saved. And Jesus says, because it's impossible with man, but not with God. 
Everything is possible with God. We'll skip over Peter's righteous indignation about what he had given up for, the, for uh, following Jesus and move to the critical part, which is the very last verses of this passage in verse 33, where, just summarizing, it says, the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will be betrayed to the priests. They will condemn him to death, flog him, kill him. Three days later, he will rise. You see, Jesus is saying, with man, it's not about do, it's impossible. But with God, it's impossible. The disciples are walking up this road, puzzled and afraid. Some of them are afraid. Some of them are amazed. They're all, all mixed up. And then Jesus drops this in and said, and this is how it's going to be done. And he says, the impossible is going to be made possible by me, dying on a cross. And that's where we're walking right now. And the disciples are following him, and they will be fearful, fearful, because this is where they're heading. There is nothing he can do. There's nothing they can give. And so Jesus lives this sinless life. He dies. As he prophesied, he rises again. And in rising again, in a way we can't fully understand, he conquers death. And the scriptures tell us that God loved the world so much that he gave his son to do what was impossible for us, to make possible for us to have forgiveness of sins and find eternal life. So is insurance for eternal life possible? Could we buy it here and now? I love that quote. And I wish someone would tell me. And that's really what it's about. That's why we're here this morning. To tell, that's why this choir is doing the tour it's doing. It's why Saddleback Church and why Shadow Chapel exists. Can you imagine John Curry, Kerry running for president, seeking insurance for the big event that's going to come up in November? And somebody says to him, Look, John, the premium's going to be 40 million for terrorism. We're at red alert at the moment and it's too expensive. Then somebody says, It's okay. Somebody, some benefactor has paid the premium. Can you imagine if John Kerry then said, Ah, forget it. Go and write off the whole idea. I've thought better of it. I've got other things. I'll go back to my law practice. I won't bother running for president. John Kerry's whole life has been seeking a way to run for president. That young, rich young ruler, his life was looking for eternal life. And he found, he thought the answer in Jesus Christ. But when he saw the premium, it was too high. Now, even although the premium was paid, he still wasn't prepared to follow Jesus. How much did that young man want eternal life? The answer is not enough and there are some folks like that who will hear the claim of Jesus Christ and the offer of salvation and the offer of forgiveness because without forgiveness we can't have the eternal life and they will say I don't want it that much I'm not prepared for that degree of sacrifice he went away sad and life abundant life is what Jesus Christ offers each one of us and he alone was able to pay this premium and so he asks us this morning are we prepared to give our life over to Jesus so that we can gain real life there's been a lot of speculation about who this young ruler was. There was one called Nicodemus there was, uh, who came at night. This young man, who was he? I don't know, but in the book uh, on the Ten Commandments, uh, 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 John uh, Serrell, David Serrell, uh, says the following. He says that when you look at some of the things the Apostle Paul says, for instance in Philippians 3, 7, let's read it. For whatever was to my profit, I now consider it lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I might gain Christ. Now, for those of you who like these things, I think it's a lovely picture that that young man might have been the young Apostle Paul. He was a remarkable man. And this young man comes later in life back to these words of Jesus and realizes that he does have to give everything up so that he can achieve eternal life. And he considers, when he looks back on his life, he considers all that he's given up as rubbish for the surpassing worth 
of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. And I trust that will be our experience this morning. We're going to sing a final hymn.